This is the Timepieces History Podcast, brought to you by Gudrun Lorette, the expert in using modern marketing methods for the traditional heritage sector. Each bite-sized show shares the story of a place, person or object from the past in around 10 minutes. And now, here's today's show. Hello and welcome to the Timepieces History Podcast. Today we're at episode 12 of season 3, which means it's over. Uh, It's gone really quickly. I hope you've enjoyed learning more about the Romans in ancient Britain. I've uh, I've got a lot out of this and I'm really looking forward to doing another season on the Romans later on. So keep your eyes peeled for that. As always, leave me any comments over at Twitter at Gudrun Lorette. Drop me a comment on whichever platform you're listening to this on. Visit the website gudrunlorette.com forward slash podcast. Pick up the show notes, links and an episode transcript and tell me what you think. So... Today, we're looking at slaves and free men in ancient Rome. Freeborn men in Rome had three names. The praenomen was picked from a list of 12, including Marcus, Servius and Publius, which was Hadrian's name. The nomen was the family name, so Julius Caesar's descendants were known as the Julians. The Caesar part was the cognomen, used when talking about someone when they weren't there, probably as a way to distinguish them from all the others with the same first name. Caesar was a nickname meaning hairy, which was quite ironic, as the famous Caesar himself was actually bald. The ancient Roman societal structure was very clearly defined. At the top were the patricians, the wealthy ruling class made up of a very small group of dynasties. You had to be born a patrician, you could never be made one. The few families in charge were extremely powerful. Everyone else was a plebeian, whether they were labourers, craftsmen or farmers. They had almost no rights... They couldn't own land, even though they worked it, or own property, and they could not be promoted through the army ranks. Intermarriage was strictly forbidden. Unsurprisingly, the plebeians quickly tired of this and decided to make their feelings known. From 494 BC, they began to revolt, although they struggled for 200 years to win better rights for themselves. Once the plebeians had won those rights, they could become as wealthy, if not wealthier, than the ruling families. But while they could hold roles in the Senate and, in, and other important jobs, they were not permitted to join the patricians. Things eventually changed, but really towards the end of the, the empire, well beyond the Republic. One interesting aspect of the relationship between those two classes was a system known as clientele. The patrician acted as a patron to a number of plebeians, with each side providing services to the other in a mutually beneficial business partnership. The men were always the head of the household and actually held legal powers over the rest of the family. The fathers educated their sons and when they grew up, many would continue to live at home, even when married. If the father, or pater familias, wished to, he could release an adult son by performing an emancipato, emancipation, ritual three times. Women were essentially owned by their pater familias and marriage was simply the transfer of ownership from one to another. They were full citizens of the empire, but that meant very little unless they were wealthy enough to wield some political power, albeit discreetly. Marriage, particularly in the early days of Rome, was really a business transaction. It involved a bride being purchased for her new husband in a process known as coemptio, and was carried out in front of an official and five witnesses. After the couple had been together for a year, the woman had three nights in which to decide if she wanted to stay with her husband or leave him and go home. Either way, the contract still stood, but her father became her paterfamilias again. This stage was known as the usus. Later, a ceremony more like the one we're familiar with today, the conferatio, sorry my Latin's not very good, 
where the couple were observed sharing bread by witnesses and a religious ceremony was presided over by a priest or other official. Things improved for women by the end of the second century, when they were no longer the property of their fathers or husbands. They had the autonomy to decide for themselves and were given control over their dowry and any other property after the death of their father. Of course, the women fared better than the slaves, who got horrible jobs like hanging around bathhouses, guarding possessions and being obliged to scrape sweat from naked bodies. Having slaves was an entirely normal and expected practice in ancient Rome. Often, those forced into servitude were captives from defeated lands, both adults and children alike. People were also taken by pirates and sold at slave markets, with tags around their neck to list their positive qualities, usually strength or obedience. In Italy, during the reign of Augustus, Caesar's heir, Slaves made up 30% of the population. The average Roman citizen would have a couple of slaves, but the really wealthy could have hundreds. Slaves were not permitted to marry, own property, vote, or have any rights at all. In fact, they were considered the property of their owner. Exotic slaves from distant lands were particularly prized, and citizens would wander around town with their slaves in tow to show them off. Slaves were expected to help out with labouring, in education, mining, the military, but as porters, never soldiers, and road building. The only time off they got was during the annual Saturnalia festival, where they had a few days to themselves to enjoy the party. Unsurprisingly, slaves sometimes revolted. There was always a faint chance that they would be freed, but through a process known as manumission. Usually the slaves bought themselves out of their contract, but sometimes the owner would grant them their release. Freedom was either absolute or with certain restrictions, such as paying their former owner a proportion of all their future earnings. A freed slave also tended to take the first two names of their master, which sounds awful but was actually a sign of respect. Finally, there were the criminals, whose fate was worse than everyone else's. As we saw in episode 6, they were often thrown to wild animals at the circus, but that wasn't the only form of capital punishment. They could be crucified, burnt to death in their temples, or slaughtered in other indeterminate ways, and probably tortured first. Crimes included army desertion, trying to escape from slavery, and adultery. Theft, muggings and burglaries were also common. But of course, not all were punishable by death. Fines were routinely issued too. Lashings, prison and exile were all options too, depending on the severity of the misdemeanour. And of course, they could be branded so everyone knew what they'd done. That is everything for today and everything for Season 3. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be having the usual bonus episodes, but this season I'll be publishing them over two weeks instead of one. First up, an interview with Tiana Wilson-Bays about medieval architecture and what we can learn from it. And then I'll be giving my thoughts on the art summit I attended in mid-August, which discussed funding strategies and more in the post-lockdown world. Season 4 is coming at the end of September. We'll be looking at 12 remarkable women from throughout history. I'll also be talking about my new resource library from those in the heritage sector, which is a cost-effective way of learning more about content and digital marketing, and also asking for some feedback on what else you'd like to see, particularly if you're a history fan rather than a history expert. Speak to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Time Pieces History Podcast. Don't forget to listen next time for more quick history fun.